is Fred Goldstein coming to you from the Jefferson Population Health Colloquium. We've just finished up a fantastic three days of conference, and I'm joined here by Kent Bottles. Welcome to the show, Kent. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Glad to have you as well. I know you opened up this conference with a pre-conference session on population health and providers. Could you talk a little about what you got into in that session? Sure. That was a joint um, Jefferson College of Population Health and PYA, um, which is a consulting firm out of Knoxville and Nashville and Kansas City and Atlanta, um, joint effort. And the idea, I think, was to try to blend the abstract, important academic approach from the College of Population Health with some real, maybe a real live report from the trenches, what's really happening out there in the real life. And what we tried to do is, I think I kicked it off and tried to do a little bit of definitions and then talk a little bit about what I see as sort of a more narrow approach to population health. And that's the, the usual, identify your frequent flyers or identify your people that are high cost and then try to manage them and, and measure the outcomes. And that's certainly a, a big part of population health. But I think the great thing about the conference for the last three days was, to me, that's just one little slice of population health. And I think today you got a better example of, you know, the update from the Camden Coalition is, um, I think I heard Dr. Brennan say, you know, it's really about housing, it's not about medicine. And so um, that he was addressing the wrong problem, that, that now the, the real problem is that the whole system is dysfunctional. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that population health described narrowly, yes, it can help you with risk contracting, but really when population health is fully mature, it's how do you activate the community? How do you get the community to be more involved um, with every citizen that they become healthy? And I think the presentation from Colorado Kaiser was really important that I've always emphasized that it means that folks in medicine like myself, and I mean, I'm not even a real doctor, I'm a pathologist, so, um, but we have to then partner with lots of people that we never thought of before. And I thought it was fascinating that we should be partnering with housing authorities and economic development folks and the police department and the school system. And we talked a little bit in the, the uh, session that I led about the walking school bus. Right. So a walking school bus isn't going to really, I don't think, help you get a risk contract. But it's certainly going to help you um, maybe have kids uh, interact better, maybe help with air pollution, maybe help with uh, childhood obesity and getting kids more active. So, so to me, there's population health at several levels. One is, is just, uh, not just, but is, is risk contracting and shifting risk from payers to us providers. But the other is activating the whole community in a myriad of ways. So one of the things I've talked about, and I agree with you completely, the focus initially has been on this low-hanging fruit, let's manage these discrete populations. I've, I've often wondered, you know, the, the question the health plans always faced was, they really couldn't invest in it because they don't have the people for a long period of time. But if you think about risk moving to a provider group, people leave communities less often, so they do have a much longer risk tail. And so it begins to make sense to look at those things you talked about because by preventing that 10-year-old from potentially getting type 2 diabetes, they may not have them 20 years from now when they're actually in their risk pool and, and potentially causing them you know, adverse effects from a financial perspective. So do you think the providers now are beginning to sense there's a broader area they need to get involved in? No. I think providers are still confused and, and uh, I, I'm married to a provider. So um, I think that they've said, you know, folks like you can't have said the sky is falling so many times and it didn't fall. And so don't talk to me, 
till I mean, it's just the, to them, patient-centered medical homes or population health or, you know, that the uh, uncovering the genomics is going to totally change primary care. We always over-promise and under-deliver, and then people get frustrated. And I think you see that maybe, uh, here's our leap, in the presidential election. I think that a lot of people are voting or getting upset and attracted to Bernie Sanders or to Donald Trump because the status quo hasn't worked. We've overpromised, underdelivered. Uh, if you're on the right, we've uh, elected you to repeal Obamacare and you didn't do it. If you're on the left, we elected you to get uh, Medicare for all and we didn't do it. So I, I worry about us, you know, getting all excited about all these new things and acting like we're going to make it happen much more quickly than it does happen. I mean, it's 13 years ago that Craig Ventner and Francis Collins said we now have the script of life. We now know DNA. Uh, when I go see my doctor at Penn, uh, he's not uh, sending me off to 23andMe, and, and it's pretty much the same old visit. Um, now, we, we have got some Herceptin and Gleevec and some other very exciting things, and we're treating cancers better, but it's not happening as quick as we said it would. And also, I find that disconnect between all of this cool new stuff and the basic blocking and tackling, like you talked about with the walking bus or with creating communities that have access to healthy foods or places to sleep, which is really very simple approaches that can have profound effects on all, on all of us from both a cost and a health perspective. Exactly. And, and I get a little uh, chagrin that, that, you know, we know what to do. I mean, we know what to do. It's to walk more. Um, it's to not use tobacco. It's to eat vegetables. And I go back to Pekapushka, who in North Karelia, Finland, years ago, as with no power as a physician, cut the lung cancer rate and the heart attack rate by 70%. All he did was focus on nutrition, exercise, and tobacco. And so um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm as excited as anybody about cognitive computing, and I'm as excited as anybody about reading Eric Topol books and and, and, uh, and my good friend Bob Wachner. Um, but uh, I, I think that we ought to be focusing on what we know will impact the health of a community. And, and that's definitely things we already know. I think those other things are just add-ons and, and it's a big, big issue. So as we look toward the community, one of the things that sort of came out to me, and I'd heard this from Esther Dyson last year, and I also heard it some from um, Jeffrey Brenner this year, this idea that maybe some of the social service fabric we have is not functioning as well as it should. He, he mentioned the $65 a night to stay in a, a shelter and it's only taking select patients. I, you know, it, it, it creates a, a larger problem, but if we're looking to this, this social service side, do we need to begin to look at, I know Esther always talks about accountability in these not-for-profit well, groups. Well, absolutely. And, and I think that Julie Gerberding, who gave a nice talk yesterday, had a slide that was very important. It showed that if you look at the amount of money we spend on both the three trillion dollars on healthcare delivery but also the social services we're not the most expensive in the world France is right. but we spend way too much money on delivering care which includes I guess about a trillion dollars of waste and we spend far too little money on population health or public health so I think that's a real important issue and the other thing I think that was interesting was you know, maybe we need to just partner with the community, right. partner with the safety net. But again, that's a problem of 50% of Americans, near as I can tell, don't believe in a safety net. Right. So, you know, it's a, it's a big, big issue. But I do think that as care migrates out of the hospital, which it inevitably is doing, as the hospital becomes less and less important, 
to the delivery of the entire community health, I think hospitals are going to have to reinvent themselves to go out of business. And I thought it was really interesting when Dr. Feinberg, who I think moved from UCLA to Geisinger and was quoted in the Wall Street Journal as saying his job is to close all of his hospitals. Right. And I've used that quote from the Wall Street Journal and several times at hospital association meetings, they're not too, they're kind of shocked about that. So when you ask me about are doctors, you know, embracing a population health um, approach, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think that this message is getting out to the, in the trenches where I work day to day, regular people seeing regular doctors dealing with regular problems. Yeah, I agree with you completely. I attended an American College of Healthcare Executives meeting in December and they were talking about this trend of inpatient, outpatient care and how are the hospitals going to survive. And the CFO of the largest hospital in the city said, oh, we're just not going that direction. We're moving everybody to the inpatient. We're seeing increased use of our hospitals. And I was just sort of flabbergasted by it. And then, the, in fact, the population health EVP, who was a physician at the other hospital, said, well, we, we put in interqual criteria in our facilities so we can fight and increase our inpatient admissions. And it's just that disconnect. Unsustainable, and, and we shouldn't be building more bricks. We should be building more um, ability to coordinate care across the continuum of care. Um, I, I don't know whether it's that people that go to M MHA school get taught a couple of lessons. I mean, one lesson is doctors can get you fired. The other lesson is make a lot of money <laughs> from rich people and build stuff. But, right. but I don't think that those same rules apply anymore because I think if we're really going to go from fee-for-service to value-based payments, it's going to be a different environment. And I think the hospitals are really going to have to prove that they're important to the community. I know we're hospital-centric, but I really think the hospitals could really lose out if they don't Absolutely. reinvent themselves. Absolutely. So are you seeing any communities or areas where some of this is beginning to flourish? Obviously, Jeffrey's doing some of this in Camden. But oh, ab absolutely. I think there's, you know, there's a few scattered points of life, light, but what, what worries me is that sometimes they disappear when the, you know, the single champion, the Jeffrey Brenner, loses a grant or moves or, or, or does something else. So what, what I worry a little bit about is the lack of bipartisanship at the national level and there was an interesting article James Fellows just wrote in The Atlantic uh, flying around to different communities where it works. At the community level in a small city, you can't have the, the, the gridlock that you have in Washington. So I, I have a lot of optimism in terms of we'll find our way, um, but I always worry about us over-promising and under-delivering, getting people upset and angry with those of us that, that, that see the future but think it's going to happen much more quickly. And to be honest with you, it, it's not going to happen unless we can get nurses and doctors to buy in. Right. Um, you, you know, I, I'm all for um, consumer-driven medicine or patient-centered medicine or, or you, you know, whatever, whatever you want to call it. But most of us, when we get sick, want to go see a real person and, and have a relationship with a primary care physician or a specialist that's going to help us navigate this very complicated world. I mean, I go back to Jesse Grumman, my, my good friend who passed away recently. Um, you know, we're so into this healthcare stuff, we don't really lay out the 43 things that patients have to do to really get good healthcare. And we don't, we don't make it easy. We talk in jargon and, and we, we do all this stuff, but patients need to have a guide. They need to have this, the rules. They need to how to get a hold of of your office after hours if something bad happens. If you don't want me to go to the emergency room because it's not useful, well then where am I supposed to go and 
And how come nobody answers the phone when I call the line you gave me? Right. And you talk also about, you know, stuff not getting done as quickly as we would hope. There was some uh, recent announcement by Medicare that they're up to 30% value-based payment. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I saw a survey that said 9% of providers feel they're ready for this. Are we just going to see that become another fad and in five or ten years look back and say, once again, the community stood up and said, we're not doing that anymore because I don't know. can't succeed? Um, what I'm worried about and my little worried is MACRA and MIPS. I mean, um, as a physician, we're all celebrating the SGR is gone. We're not going to have every year from 1998 till the present the specter of a 20% or 30% cut in payments from Medicare to physicians. So that's great. Boy, that's great. But the problem of this, one of the few things bipartisan that's been passed which is MACRA and MIPS, which and alternative payment models, which is replaces the way we pay doctors. I spend a lot of time on the road talking to uh, groups of doctors and their administrators. I've recently been in Maine, I've been in Connecticut, I've been in Seattle. And when I talk to real doctors in real places, they don't know what MACRA is. They never heard of MIPS. They're not aware of the fact that if you don't do an alternative payment model, you're gonna get a score from zero to 100. And then that, if that score is transparently available to the public, which it should be, who's going to want to go to a doctor that has a MIPS score of 42? That's not very good. And so that, so I think basically that's going to drive everybody into alternative, alternative payment models. But what I worry about is the backlash from physicians that don't understand that. And are we ready to have everybody be ready for an alternative payment model? I don't think so, and so I, I worry a little bit, and I've talked to some folks from CMS and everything, and they don't think they recognize what a huge change MACRA is in the way we're going to pay doctors and how we haven't done a very good job of communicating that to the doctors or to the people that, that manage their practices. Fantastic. I think um, one of the things I talked about last night in the presentation, sort of a couple of doctors sort of stood up about this, was, you know, I really think that the need is to just go full cap. That would, obviously, it's have to be ready to do full cap, but that would drive the idea of if I, if I create health in my population, I actually do better. I, I agree, but, but that's not very popular. I, mean, no, I go all over the country, and when I'm talking to a group of doctors in the South or in the Midwest, they don't like that. I mean, one of the jobs I do with PYA, which is just a consulting firm, is I'm kind of parachuted in to be the physician engagement guy. So there's a group of physicians that are now being faced with a new compensation model where 30 or 40% at risk to hit various uh, quality metrics or to attend meetings or to use the CPOE on their Cerner or Epic uh, electronic medical record. And when I talk to these folks, they like fee-for-service. They understand it. They don't understand all this other stuff. And so uh, what I worry about is if we don't educate uh, providers uh, to what competencies are needed, then we're going to be in big trouble. And I applaud Kaiser Permanente for opening a new medical school. That makes a lot of sense since those folks have said we have to retrain everyone who comes out of the residency programs at UCLA and Penn and Harvard and really good mm -hmm. places because they don't know how to practice medicine in the real world. Um, in a cost-effective way, in a value-based way. Well, obviously we've got a lot of issues up right now. 
discussed a ton of them here at the colloquium, and I want to thank you for joining us. That was very insightful, obviously from both the physician perspective, an expert in population health, and then being out there and talking to these groups all around the country. Well, the so. only thing I would correct there is I'm not an expert in population health. I'm just a retired <laughs> pathologist that, uh, and actually I have read the entire ACA, all 2,700 pages, and a lot of the uh, final rules. I'm just a guy trying to understand what's going on because um, I am a baby boomer who, according to Jeff Brenner, is going to now blossom into all sorts of problems. My hidden occult addiction problems evidently are going to blossom, <laughs> according to Dr. Brenner. So I'm a little worried about my future. Right now, I mean, I, I tried to be retired and it hasn't worked. So um, what I do now is I teach a class usually uh, once or twice a year for the Jefferson University College of Population Health. I usually teach it online. So my students are practicing physicians and healthcare practitioners that are trying to get a master's degree in chronic disease management or patient safety or population health or a master's of public health. Um, I also do about 40 or 50 keynotes a year. So just going out to both medical groups and hospital association groups and MGMA state chapters. And I go usually go to the HFMA um, annual meeting, the ANI, and give a, a talk or two. Um, so I do that. I do some board retreat kind of things where a healthcare system will want some advice or a facilitation of a board retreat over uh, different issues. And then about 10 or 15 hours a week, I work with uh, a set of consultants, Pershing Yokelin Associates, which is out of um, Knoxville and Atlanta and Nashville and, and Kansas City. Um, I guess the other thing I do is I'm chief medical officer for PY Analytics, which is a predictive analytics uh, company that hired a bunch of really smart data scientists from the Oak Ridge National Labs and in, in Tennessee, and we do a lot of consulting around predictive analytics. So I, I think uh, in my background is, I mean, I, I went to Berkeley and majored in history. I went to law school and hated it and dropped out. Um, went back and to Occidental College and did the pre-med stuff, got into medical school and decided I better finish medical school because I dropped out of law school. Uh, you'll see a, a theme here. I then became a, a family practice uh, resident didn't really like that and then went into pathology so um but then i sort of missed the impatience so i became a fine needle aspiration expert and started a the fine needle clinic at the san francisco general hospital where i'd see patients and do biopsies of breasts and thyroids and prostates and lymph nodes um and then uh my wife and i who's an obstetrician gynecologist we decided to move to iowa city because we weren't real thrilled with the public schools in san francisco so we both were recruited to the University of Iowa, where um, I was a professor of pathology and ended up running the department and sort of without thinking learned I was good at getting large groups of people to do stuff they didn't want to do. So they decided that the University of Iowa wanted to create a HMO and so I became the doctor that went to Des Moines to talk to Blue Cross and created the health plan and then ran the health plan for a while. And then because nobody wanted to do outpatient medicine, I as a pathologist became in charge of outpatient medicine at the University of Iowa. Um, and then I got recruited in a stunningly bad career move to Allegheny University of the Health Sciences here in Philadelphia um, just before it went bankrupt. So after it went bankrupt, I kind of got catapulted out of academic medicine and did a whole bunch of stuff. Ran a genomics company in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, ran a healthcare consortium in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, became chief medical officer of the Iowa Health System, then ran the Institute for Clinical Systems Improvement in Minneapolis, um, and then tried to retire and 
and now uh, do as I say, a lot of keynotes and just trying to think about things and, and trying to understand uh, all these things. And it turns out I probably should have just stayed in law school because now I do a lot of work that probably I need a law degree for. So um, I, I guess I would, I would finish up with a, a, a quote from Tolkien, which is, all who wander are not lost. So I'm still wandering around medicine trying to figure out what's going on and, and trying to uh, agree with uh, Jack Welsh, who said, if you're not confused, you haven't been paying attention. And you're very active in social media and can be followed on Twitter. That's true. I, I, I am on Twitter at, at Kent Bottles, which is my name, um, and have used Twitter a lot for crowdsourcing. I mean, I, I do a lot of speaking, and a lot of times I speak on things I don't know very much about. So I, I need to go on Twitter, Twitter and crowdsource. I mean, at one point, Einstein College of Medicine asked me to come up and do a day conference on how to use social media for undergraduate medical school education. And after agreeing to the gig, I realized I didn't know very much about that. So I went on Twitter and said, help, and got 36 different responses from all over the world about how to use it and got just enough material to be able to, to survive the day, uh, facilitating that day at Einstein in, in uh, the Bronx. And so I, I think it, a lot of it's kind of like uh, supply chain. Twitter allows you to have just-in-time knowledge to give a keynote. Well, fantastic. Thanks for joining us here from the Population Health Colloquium at the Jefferson College of Population Health. Thanks for having me. Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.